Welcome to ABC Cafe. I'm your host, Anthony Apodaca. We are a podcast for curious people, a long-form conversation on culture, art, and politics in the state of Vermont, produced in partnership with Revelry Theatre. Revelry is a small nonprofit theater in the South End. All right, I'm here with representatives Selena Colburn, Brian China, and Deanna Gonzalez, and we are talking about their recent open letter uh, as a call to defund the Vermont State Police. Uh, Brian, Selena, Deanna, thank you so much for joining me on ABC Cafe. Good to see you here. I don't know who to pitch this to first, so I guess maybe whoever thinks maybe spent the most time working through this, you'd want to just give me a a brief introduction of what what are you demanding here? What is what is your call to action with this open letter? Um, Selena, why don't you start? Okay, so we are in a the very simple basic ask in this letter is that our colleagues in relevant money and policy committees look at a 20% reduction in the Vermont State Police budget in the um, coming, the budget that's coming for us for the coming year. We actually, because of COVID, have divided what would normally be our annual budget up into like a first quarter budget that we've already passed, which really was just trying to kind of bridge us um, through this period where we don't know very much about the revenue that's coming in with just minimal cuts. And so we mm-hmm. actually supported that budget because we thought they did a good job not doing sort of proactive draconian you know, cuts in anticipation of austerity. Um, but then we'll go back to the legislature in August, September getting ready to adjourn for a bit now and do a budget for the remainder of the year. So essentially like a three quarter budget. And our ask um, is, is a kind of divestment investment strategy that there would be a 20% reduction in police funding and reinvestment um, in communities. And I can, I'd be happy to let one of my colleagues talk about um, some of the suggestions we threw out around that and um, and that the committees would really work with us to figure out and with each other to figure out and the community and the relevant advocates to figure out how we could achieve that. Um, it's not at this point a detailed like line item budget cut, even though that has very much been the response that people have had in a, as a way of um, kind of shooting down our proposal is we'd like to know exactly what line item they want to cut, you know? Yeah. But I think we're asking people to engage in a process of reimagining with us and with the community. Right. And so, what? yeah, there's two points that you guys sort of make in the letter. I mean, one is that the biggest contributor to violent crime is poverty. And two, that there's not actually statistically meaningful ways to look at a correlation between police and, and the rate of crime. So I guess as background, you know, what, what did you use to come to this decision? And, you know, how, how do you imagine it going forward? As, as sort of a way to kind of fend off critics, I suppose, who would just say, we need the police. Well, when I think about the, the way that we think about police, but then the way that it's actually played out, 
it's a really different experience and and that um the way that that kind of in the general imagining of what police do is oh they protect us but what we are actually asking police to do is we are asking police to keep certain communities in line in certain ways and then we have expanded that to say we also want you to know how to appropriately respond to mental health crises. Oh, but that's actually a different job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and responding to mental health crises with a gun, you're trained actually to escalate. No matter how much additional training you get to de-escalate, primarily the job is to escalate. And so how is it possible to actually do the job that we imagine the police are supposed to be doing in the framework of control and Um, really just control that the police fundamentally are. And so I really think that what we need is to actually say, what are the police doing and how, how are they acting? Um, Not, not as individuals, but how does the role of police actually act in our society in Vermont? And when, once we see that, which all of the activists that are rising up across Vermont, across the, the U.S., and all of the articles that are being written with these statistics that are actually showing what is true about police and the role of police in our society and what they're actually doing, it's really breaking open our imagining of what the role of police is and, and actually seeing it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And so if we're looking at um, rates of, of um, crime solved, they're very low for what our imagining is. If we look at rates of um, crime prevention, as you just said, Anthony, that really crime prevention is about uh, who has resources. And we know that when there are police in places, they find crime because crime happens everywhere. It's just a matter of does somebody with a badge and a gun see that? And when we have higher rates of police in communities that have less resources, of course, they're going to there's um, there's going to be more arrests because there's more people seeing the crime that's happening there, even though crime is happening in all communities all over. And so, what this open letter really does is says, as Selena just said, let's reimagine where these funds can go because we know that we we have issues of poverty here in Vermont, and we know with COVID we're going to increase that. And so, really using these funds to actually support our our state and actually support our communities and make them safer is what we are asking for. So my my, my next question for you guys is uh, how has it been received? I have seen some criticism. There's been uh, at least one VT Digger article about it. And uh, the uh, perception I'm getting is that it hasn't been too well received, but maybe you can enlighten me. Um, I have some more follow-ups after that, but in your minds. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start with that one. So um, I have seen a mixed response, depending on who you speak with. Um, on one end, you have the usual ex- uh, response we get from law enforcement. Um, law enforcement always wants more money and uh, more gear, more equipment. Although then when we ask them to get body cameras, they tell us they need guns instead. So, you know, there's this pattern in place. Um, so on one end, you have people saying, no, we don't need less funding. The reason we have problems is because you don't give us enough money and we need more money to do more things. And, you know, police 
you know, we should be uh, enhancing what police do, like adding mental health workers to police, adding, embedding things in the system of the police. Mm -hmm. um, and there's people saying, you know, um, that, I mean, I don't like using the word, but I'm going to say it. They, that were crazy, you know, that this is a crazy idea. Like it's that it's not, that it's not realistic. Um, that we're going to put people in danger if we mess with the institution of the police. Um, that there's people saying that they, that we should look at new models of policing, like the 21st century pillars of policing. Um, so, so there's a lot of resistance to the idea of reducing funding for the police or, or changing what they do too much. And like, so a lack of, of um perspective of the bigger picture of which which my colleagues were just talking about you know that bigger picture that contributes to social behaviors and activities that then the police are engaging with um but then there's the other perspective which is that there's a massive outcry around the country and even around the world right now to to question the role of police and to like Diana was saying, reimagine what they're doing. And they, and so I'm also hearing a lot of support for our idea. So as much as there's resistance from um, some people, there's many others who are excited about the idea that we might actually get at, um, get at the, the roots of the problems that we're seeing through the police and the connection between those problems and systemic racism, which maybe we could talk more about. Yeah. Before we dive into that, I wanted to ask, so I guess um, some of the criticisms have pointed back to S219 and S119 and the idea that, you know, we can A, um, maybe tie funding to different behaviors in terms of data collection on on uh, specifically race data collection for, for arrests and things like that. And then the second piece is restrictions on you know, prohibited types of maneuvers and this and that. And as as we're looking across the whole country, not in Vermont, like people are sort of falling into two camps. One is, I think, real moves to take power away from the police, which I think is what you, your your camp. And then the second camp is, well, let's just make some, you know, per, you know, cuts around the edges and make it a little bit better, but we're not actually going to take power away from the police. And, and, are you guys supporting two one nine and one one nine, or how do you how do you feel about those in the context of your of your letter and what we've been talking about? Um, <clears throat> maybe we'll just like take <laughs> take turns going through in order, unless uh, somebody unless it feels like we should do things differently. Two one nine is going to be in my committee next week, I think the Judiciary House Judiciary Committee. Um, and so I, I haven't looked closely at the final form yet that it made its way out of the Senate in. Um, but I think I think there's the two camps you described, and I think there is also a I don't know if I would call it a camp, but a third camp. I mean, we're we're not proposing let's just immediately eliminate the um, institute, the Vermont State Police and see what happens. Mm -hmm. We're proposing a, an incremental cut in funding 
which I can't speak for the others, but for me is, is I do see that as an abolitionist path. Um, so I'm not saying like, oh, if we just reduced by 20% funding, everything would be fine. Um, I see that as an incremental step, but I do think that along the way, as, as the institution of policing continues to exist, um, some of those reforms probably are needed in the interim. Um, and I also think it's really tricky because we have a lot of colleagues who like for them, those reforms are the end point, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so <clears throat> that's what I'm thinking about a lot in the week ahead. If indeed my committee is the one, is one of the ones who's really taking a look at some of these reforms that came from the Senate is what can I support and how can I posit my support for that again and again and again as this is not this is not like going to solve the problems of policing what we need to do is be moving away from policing to the extent that police continue to exist in the short term is this going to be helpful or harmful right that's kind of the filter that I'm going to try to apply to 219 and anything else that comes our way I did want to say something about the transition, which I, you're, you're asking about these two particular bills. And I, the way I see it in the, the legislative process, there's not much we do that I'm satisfied with, that it's always a compromise and it's incrementalism. There's always small changes. And so I'm viewing the police the way I view a lot of other harmful behaviors of our society. And uh, as a social worker, when I'm trying to address a harmful or risky behavior, I use an approach called harm reduction. So I'm seeing it like harm reduction for police right now. So S 219 and 119 are it's harm reduction like what immediate reforms can we make to reduce the harm of the police while we come up with a replacement for the police so that's just sort of my perspective that i want to throw in about how i'm viewing those two bills right i thought it was interesting and maybe uh, i would like to get some uh get someone's opinion about this but i one of the criticisms leveled at your your proposal to defund the state police by 20 percent and reinvest it in, in different community activities um was that it was sort of taking national talking points and just fitting them into the state of vermont which is smaller and different and isn't like minneapolis uh, but then I thought it was interesting because those same people who are critiquing that are taking different national talking points about chokeholds and body cameras yeah. and shoving them into our society. And one thing I, I went back last night, I, I, I looked through every single police murder going back to 1970. None of them in Vermont have been because someone used a chokehold. <laughs> every single one was like most of them were someone being shot. Uh, a couple of them were people being tased and a handful of them were people, uh, people with a mental illness. And so I'm kind of looking at, from my point of view, as a voter, <laughs> S1219 and 119 seems like it's actually, it's not bad, but it also seems like it's solving a non-issue. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a segue to Brian's maybe wanting to talk a little bit about the systemic racism, is what are the problems that you that we see in the state of Vermont when it comes to systemic racism and how it's you know disproportionately targeting uh, different minority groups and people of color. 
And what are the problems that we need to address then in that case? Yeah, well, we we know, and Brian, you look frozen, so I'll I'll jump in here. Um, that um, <laughs> um, maybe not. Okay, <laughs> um, that uh, that African Americans in Vermont are disproportionately stopped for traffic violations, disproportionately incarcerated, and our um, our rates are really high. And so it's um, we we know that, and it's when we say, oh, that's a problem at other places. Well, we know that for folks who are black in Vermont, that their chances of getting targeted by police are just as high as they are in the worst percentages in the rest of the US. Like that's true. And and so it's, um, we have to address that. And when we look at state police, we have a couple of recent incidents where people were harassed by police because they were an ethnic minority. And, and so it's, um, we know that the state police have this problem that they have been trying to do reform for years now, have been doing a, um, a lot of different trainings and still have a systemic problem. And so it's, um, and when we look at the state police, we also know that there's some communities in Vermont that rely on them for all of their policing. And so we need to have other investments into those communities so that people are not just um, without support, but it's appropriate support rather than having, having, this, um, having this system that is consistently targeting people of color, consistently targeting black folks. And when we have our, when our percentages of black Vermonters is as small as it is, it is, I don't, I don't even know how, that's not the way that I want to say it. it's it. There's this image around for many white folks that, Oh, we, there's not that many black folks in Vermont. So that means that we don't have a problem. Well, if your chance of getting uh, stopped by the police, arrested by the police, put into jail by the police is just as high here as any place in the U.S. that is the most um, racist that you can possibly imagine, then this is a place that is just as racist as any place that you can possibly imagine. Because yeah. if your lived experience is my chance of being stopped, arrested, and incarcerated is just as high, then for, for um, disproportionately high, then that means it's not a good place to live. And that's something that I really want to change that uh, I'm sure that Selena and Brian, you also can join me in listing off a number of black folks, black Vermonters that have left the state because it is so incredibly difficult to live here. And, um, and like I tear up because it is, it is such a difficult place for black Vermonters to live that people leave and we are losing so many good people. And when we look at police and we look at the experience of, of being disproportionately targeted, we need to change that. Yeah, just for a couple stats on that, I think you're two times more likely to be pulled over in Burlington. And the incarceration rate, I think, is, you know, uh, for black members of our community is in Vermont is I think a little over 1%, but the incarceration rate is like eight and a half to 11%, which is, I think a 
crazy high. Uh, and I think in the, in that stats, it's also important to know that um, that when you compare, and I don't have this stat off the top of my head, so Anthony, maybe that's something that you can find out later, um, but that when you compare, um, when white folks are stopped, the chance that they have something uh, illegal going on versus when black folks are stopped and they have the chance of something illegal going on, that um, it is radically different. And so it wanting to look at its as I said earlier, when there's more police interaction, they're finding more crime mm -hmm. because there's crime in all communities, but that um, there's so many stops that are happening for black folks that nothing, there's no crime, nothing is happening. And so it's, um, it's not just that police are finding crime, but they're over they're They're not finding crime as well. I feel kind of in our inarticulate in that, but just to, I think just to, to build on what Deanna is saying, um, the way in which the level of so-called criminal activity is different is that white people who are stopped by police are actually more likely to have contraband, you know, something illegal in their possession than people of color who are less likely, but the stops are happening disproportionately in the other direct direction at, at just, as, as you all noted, at really significantly higher rates. So it's not even, there's the, the point being that if behavior was what was driving this, the, the stops would be disproportionate in the other direction. White people would be actually the ones who are being stopped more. So I, Wanted to switch gears just a little bit. So obviously, I, you know, I'm on board with this proposal. I love it. Um, but I do want to ask, because one thing that I haven't seen too much about is, you know, the act actually addressing some of the, the laws that we have on the books. So, for example, uh, nullifying the, the war on drugs in the state of Vermont. You know, why, 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 why are we pulling people over for these sort of like nonviolent infractions or why, why are we arresting people for, for drug use or something like this? Um, and I was doing a little bit of reading, um, going back to sort of, you know, Nixon was sort of the, the starting point for the modern war on drugs. And I just wanted to read you guys this quote because this is, uh, it, it was, it kind of blew my mind. It's actually from Harper's in 2016, but it's John Ehrlichman, who was the domestic, the chief domestic policy advisor to Richard Nixon. Um, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So I guess in this context, like a lot of people who are locked up in Vermont are there for nonviolent offenses, you know, drug related possession of heroin, this this type of thing. So is it also not a valid tactic to sort of just go at the 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 um, reasons police are arresting people and looking for contraband in the first place in, in addition to defunding? I, I'd like to start to talk to, just talking about um, school 
the school to prison pipeline a little bit. Yeah, um, great. And then maybe we could talk a little bit more about defelonization of drugs and like Selena could take that over. But I'm just thinking at a younger age before there's even things like like drugs for the cops to look for, the behavior of children of color is criminalized. And the way that they're treated in the school system is different. And that goes back to white supremacy and how it's embedded in people. And people are unaware sometimes that they are treating the behavior of children of color differently. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm a social worker. I work mostly with children and families. And I regularly hear stories from children about the, the experiences they're having in school. And so then when you embed police in a school, from an early age, children are being policed and their behaviors are being you know, their behaviors are being criminalized. So it's normal for adolescents to have fights and conflict. And if, if adults were stepping in and teaching them how to resolve conflict instead of giving them a ticket or putting, sending them to court. And so what happens is at an early age, um, people are starting to um, be connected with a criminal justice system. So I think one place to start would be to decriminalize the behavior of children to stop having, you know, stop having a system set up where we're, we're criminalizing adolescent behavior. Um, and part of adolescent behavior is exploring, it, it's risky behavior, it's sex, it's drugs, it's alcohol, not saying all kids um, do these things and not saying all kids develop problems with these things, but it's normal for as a, a, a person's growing to explore different facets of the world. And so when we criminalize those behaviors too, um, it's problematic. And so I'd like to hand it off to one of the others to talk more about decriminalizing drugs, because I think that's an important piece of this. And I know Selena's worked on that. So a lot. Yeah, yeah I'd love to talk. I'd love to talk about that. How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> Until I my battery runs out on the recorder. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I serve on the Judiciary Committee, as I mentioned. So the role of that committee actually is a lot to look at our just our whole criminal classification, right? Like what are the laws on the books? And um, the chair of that committee in the House is quite reform minded. So I would say a lot of our work has been about trying to um, reduce sentencing, reduce penalties, etc. But where it gets harder in the legislative space is to talk about removing criminal penalties altogether. And that is something I have worked on. It's actually part of really like why I ran to be in the legislature <clears throat> because as a city councilor in Burlington, I'd been working on opioid policy a lot and, and found myself just like coming up against a lot of state policy. So with Brian and Deanna and others, uh, we've, we've, I've introduced, we've introduced bills to decriminalize drugs in a lot of different ways. Um, I've, I've introduced bills to defalonize all drug possession simply because that's a uh, like a easier step for people to get their heads around than full decrim. I have introduced a bill to decriminalize possession of buprenorphine, which is a, a prescription drug that a lot of um, folks use to self-treat opioid use disorder to prevent withdrawals. 
Ryan is introduced um, bills to decriminalize plant medicine. Um, and then Deanna and I also introduced with our colleague Emily Kornheiser, our colleagues Emily Kornheiser and Maxine Grad bill to decriminalize sex work in the state. And all of these bills, like when you introduce them, they get a ton of press, they get a ton of conversation. Um, in my committee, some of them do get hearings and like, I think there's genuine, genuine interest, but they, with the exception of decriminalizing marijuana, um, I haven't seen these concepts make it across the finish line in the four years that I've been in the legislature. Um, but I absolutely think that's right. It's like we need to be reforming at both ends and and we need and our criminal code, for lack of a better word, is one of the tools that we're giving police right now. And so the, the less behavior we criminalize, the better. But a, a legislative space moves in increments, in slow increments. And the folks who are elected to serve in that space and make get to make decisions about whether or not these things move forward, we have a system in Vermont and really all around the country where it takes an incredible amount of privilege to be elected and serve in that space. Um, and on a lot of resources, legislators are not really paid very well, they're there part-time. And so we have a legislature that really doesn't look like, it is not representative of the state and is, excuse, much older, a lot of retired people are there. And so it's just not like poised to move these um, concepts forward swiftly, I would say. And that's been incredibly frustrating to me, um, but I, I definitely see my role and our role as progressives. And I think we have some good allies, a handful of good allies in the Democratic Party on this is to just like keep trying to blow those conversations open in the legislature. But so far they've mostly amounted to um, what my friend Ruben Jackson sometimes calls the C word conversation. <laughs> And that action. Right. We'll keep trying though. Why why do you think it is? I mean, so far in this in this, you know, obviously the impetus for all a lot of these conversations um was the killing of George Floyd a few weeks ago. I, we don't need to go into the I, I think everybody is up to speed on that at this point. But I have and we've heard a lot of calls to either, you know, move in the direction of abolition. Um but I to be honest, haven't heard a lot of people actually talking about the war on drugs as sort of like the underlying, um, one of the underlying problems. And I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on why that is or how we could raise awareness in Vermont, because, you know, it's not even really on the the list of demands, for example, in, in many places. Yeah, so um, I think it, um, so I can't speak for the activists across the, the U.S. and what, um, if it's a strategic choice or or not. Um, so I, I can't speak to that because I'm not intimately involved in the, the activist groups that are making such big movement and action across the U.S. Um, what I, I can hypothesize and, and um, muse on is that 
it is such a big ask of defunding the police and that um, sometimes that's, it's good to, in a strategic way to really focus on that, that, that specific of it and not pull out into a holistic. I mean, I, you know, all, all of us um, here are under the flight path and here the F-35s. And so I think a lot about defunding the military and how much excessive waste goes into the the equipment and, and the F-35s at $44,000 every flight for every single one um, that goes on. But that can feel like so far away from the conversation um, or that we're at hand that I, I wonder if that's kind of part of it of people not wanting to bring in the war on drugs because it feels far away from defunding the police and defunding or and and far away from the moment of um, the very intimate personal moment that so many people saw of watching a video of murder for nine a public murder for nine minutes um, that that a teenager filmed. And so that it feels so personal, so intimate um, in the, and so then I, I muse and I hypothesize that it's hard for people to go back to Nixon and go back to the foundation of these really, the racist policies, the, the intentionally uh, created racist policies that have elevated the police and, and and really decimated our communities of color across the U.S. So that's my my musing, but I think that in in Vermont we have these these things that Selena has really been a forefront on in terms of decriminalizing different um, different pieces, and uh, I think that we could get some traction, potentially could get some traction there. But um, that that's my my musings. I I, I know that. Um, you asked about the war on drugs, but I see the war on drugs as a new example of an old pattern that we see in in American society, where um, depending on what phase of history we look at, there was different things that law enforcement would be focusing on. And racism has been embedded in that from the beginning in terms of what the police do. And if we look at, you know, it was Juneteenth yesterday, happy Juneteenth. Uh, you know, the, the, the last slaves who were being held in Texas were told that they had been free for two years. They were set free. Um, if we look at what happened after slavery, that there were specific laws put in place for black people that didn't even apply for white people. And I was looking at some of, they called them the black codes. And I was looking at some of the black codes the other day to reflect on history. And it's like ridiculous things like a minister needing to get permission from the police to like preach, you know, like in a certain place, like these, there was all these rules set up to, 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 to control black bodies after they were set free from the institution of slavery. And immediately this convict leasing um, system began where people would be uh, convicted of a crime and then put into debt with the state. And then they would have to pay off their debts by being convicts who the state would lease back to plantations. So Slavery yeah. continued in a new form, and police were a big part of that. They were they were a big part of that system of trying to enforce laws that were created to for them to enforce to take black people and put them back into bondage. And I think the war on drugs is another example of that because we have a current prison system that's allowed that that is 
prisoners are allowed to be used as um, to work for free, you know, and even in Vermont, in our constitution, the state is still allowed to hold a person in bondage um, for debts and that our prisoners, you know, are basically working for substandard wages, you know, not even a wage, you can call it. Um, so I'm just putting that out there that the yeah. war on drugs fits into this greater system that's been created that the police also fit in. Um, and it's and, it, and it's deeply rooted in racism and that there's many of us around the country who don't think reforming or replacing the police is even enough. Now is the time for us to do that hard work of looking honestly at our history, at the trauma in our history and at how modern social institutions are embedded in a foundation of racism. And the only way we're really gonna do that is a truth and reconciliation process where we really are honest about the roots of our current social structures and honest about what we're gonna do to change that. And how are we gonna reinvest society's resources to, to dismantle racism systemically? Um, and so I, you know, I, all three of us are advocating for a state task force to look at an apology and reparations for the institution of slavery. And we all support removing slavery from, or banning slavery in our constitution in all forms. And the other thing that I want to um, add to what Brian said, that a lot of people don't know about the, the history, that um, the moving away from the institution of slavery and then having Jim Crow and having new Jim Crow laws yeah. is that um, one, one way to prevent Black folks from voting was to make small crimes felons, mm -hmm. felonies. And, and so when we talk about uh, bringing so Selena what she put forward in terms of making certain drug crimes not not felonies that um, that when things are felonies it's in the history of preventing black folks from voting and here in Vermont we're one of the few states that that you can still vote after you um, have uh, have you've been convicted of a crime and and used your and done your um, your time, but many states you cannot, uh, and you can never vote again. And that is part of this history of preventing black folks from voting. And so I wanna um, put that also in the, the context of this conversation as we look at the different ways that black Americans have been excluded from democracy and how the system of policing is an has historically and presently been an integral part of preventing Black Americans from being an integral part of our democracy. Yeah, and this, I mean, circles back nicely to the beginning of the conversation, which is, you know, what is the function of police in society and really asking those questions. And I get the sense that a lot of people really haven't thought about that before, but the, the function of the police as a method of, of, of social control and that that's particularly targeted uh, people of, of color and minorities throughout history in, in a very sort of overtly racist way. I do, I do wonder, and I guess maybe we could leave it with this, which is, you know, how, how, how do we educate the public a little bit on maybe the, this function of the police? Because I, I've been reading uh, Alex Vital's uh, The End of Policing, and, you know, one of the things he talks about is the, the origins of the modern police department, you know, come from... Uh, from Britain's control of, of Ireland with Sir Robert Peel. 
and the the peasant revo- the, the Irish peasant revolts were just too annoying and too costly, you know, to keep putting down with with the army and with the militia. So they made a professional police task force uh, composed of you know Irish people to actually help control the the Irish population. And then basically, this was imported in the United States. It was used in the the military, the U.S. military, in the occupation of the Philippines. Um, so what what we kind of have as a the police force is really not that dissimilar to an occupying an occupying force in terms of the way that it's designed to control a society. And I guess my question really is, how do we keep getting the word out, educating the public, and then how can people get involved in this in this issue that are listening and they're like, hey, I want to do something. Um. Uh, so that is a really really good and really tough question. And I think there's, I think there's a, there's definitely the like, how do we help people understand the history and origins of policing, which in this country is completely grounded in upholding white supremacy um, at every turn historically, really. And I think there's like a huge hunger and interest for folks and information right now there's you know like we can we've all seen the right the bestseller book list is all all books like how to be anti-racist and white fragility and so i'm hopeful that in the as people are doing that work i you know doing the book group work which hopefully the work doesn't stop there for people that there's going to be a growing awareness of this. But I think another way to engage people is in really imagining the opposite. Like what would it look like if we were investing in the needs of your communities? What are the needs of your communities that police are currently responding to often inadequately? And what would, what do you really need? And um, I think that's the conversation, the, the big conversation that we need to have. Like one of the big um, points of resistance to our proposal has been that the Vermont State Police, we're, we're a very rural state. We all come from a, the more urban part of the state and rural communities rely on police for a lot of things, including intervention in domestic violence, situations and in the absence of other resources a lot of folks have done a lot of work with with sometimes success and sometimes not to make the police like better at being the interveners in those situations but we also know that rural communities are really really lacking in resources around the state and that there's high rates of poverty there's just such significant need and so I think one way of really engaging people in this work is going to be going into communities across the state and just really listening deeply about what their needs are. And, and, I, and I think not, you know, not, not presupposing that what we're hearing coming out of Minneapolis or somewhere else is going to transfer here, but really, really understanding the needs of Vermont communities and how we could actually meet them in a way that doesn't involve policing. I'll just say one last thing. Um, and I know we're running short on time, but the, the 
one of the biggest pieces of resistance I have found to like decriminalizing what I would call for lack of a better word phrase victimless crimes is that we have actually embedded like so much social services into our police and criminal justice system that this argument comes back from prosecutors, from police, and it's and it's unfortunately not always entirely wrong, um, even though I reject it, <laughs> ultimately, where they're like, the only way to get people help is a criminal justice system interaction, and then they can go to drug court, and then they can access treatment, or, or you know, when we were trying to decriminalize sex work, it was like, well, the only way to get someone out of being trafficked, being coerced into sex work is to criminalize them. And I, I reject that, but I do mm -hmm. think we've embedded so much stuff in the criminal justice system that doesn't belong there, that we've created this leverage point of resistance for folks who are gonna oppose these ideas. And like, how do we get that stuff out of there, whether it's policing or courts, and figure out what communities really need. Right. And that's Brian mentioned that too, also, where it's like the, the solution is, oh, we need mental health workers. Well, let's put them in the police department. We need, like, what are we just making a bigger and bigger police department uh, to handle everything with jails and criminalization? Um, but yeah, if you, if you if want to, other people want to respond to that, that two part question I had too, that as a summary. I think as, as a summary, just that um, I've been looking at different things around reimagining what it would be. So if we had, uh, if we had a, a, a system where there were people who their only job was to deescalate. So you could call someone to come if your neighbors were having a fight um, and that they could come and they could help de-escalate that, that that was their job is a very different framework than police coming. And so that that's one thing that we could do in terms of reimagining, or if there were, uh, if you had a, um, a stop or a light bulb out on your car or something bad, on, like a needing repair on your car, that there were actually people who would pull you over and say, hey, let's fix that right now. Um, and so that I've got the tools in my car, let's fix it up because this is a safety issue and want to help you very different approach and orientation than let me give you a ticket because you are, have failed on this safety issue. And so, um, that, that reimagining, and I, and I also want to, to highlight that a lot of people talk about the challenge and danger of being a police, which is true. It's a very stressful job. And it's not in the top 10 occupations of risk of death. And so um, it's also like what we imagine is true for police when we actually look at the da data that being a logger or being a roofer, you're more likely to die doing that job than you are as a police officer. And so it's um, a lot of times we have this, this idea but really looking at what is true is, is important for us to figure out what move, what moves us forward. And so um, want to also just put that little nugget out for, because when I saw that recently, I was like, Oh, right. Of course, of course, being a logger, you're more likely to die than you are as a police officer because it's an exceptionally dangerous job, but we do not elevate loggers 
to this level um, of we have to, it's okay for loggers to murder people because they're at risk of dying all the time. We don't do that. And, but that is the, the conversation that we, we have around police that, oh, sometimes they kill people, but that's because they're, they might die. Uh, and, and that's, that's not an okay equivalent. And, and anyway, and then when you actually look at the data, it doesn't, doesn't play out. So mm-hmm. I want to also put that into our conversation today. Yeah, and and in um in in it's summarizing it for me, I, I think both my colleagues spoke a lot about alternative interventions. Um, in, in addition to looking at what are the social problems that that the police are responding to, um, we need alternative interventions, but we should really be looking at the root of the problems and investing in preventing mm-hmm. those problems. And so, if if police are responding to mental health challenges, not only do we need creative and mental health interventions, we should look at what's causing those mental health problems. Mm-hmm. What is the trauma that, that is, is happening for people? What, where is, do they have access to the mental health and health care resources that they need to stay well um, so that the police aren't being called on them? Or, you know, when we look at crime and we look at people making criminal choices, um, it, what's at the root of that? What trauma is at the root of those behaviors? And what role does poverty play? And as a society, if we could take those resources that we're putting into police and reinvest them into solving the social problems, we will just need those interventions less. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I think we need to look at um, how do we reinvest into, um, how do we reinvest in solving social problems? That's all the time we have for today. So thank you all so much for joining me. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here.